probably for much of the last couple of years, um, the thought of serving in the military has been much in our minds and hearts, especially at dinner time, as we pray. And as we have uh, prayed for David and for Thomas Crum, then seen Sam leave and uh, been aware of John serving over in Afghanistan. And he's home on leave right now, but he'll be going back soon. I've been thinking a lot about a man in Scripture who is a military man. We don't think of him that way, but um, probably the most... Other than the centurion who Jesus speaks of his understanding of being under and exercising authority, probably this man, uh, the most militant statement uh, is made about him than anyone in the New Testament, and that's John the Baptist. And when it comes to godly manhood and demonstrations of boldness and zeal and courage, it would be fair to say that few are the equal of John the Baptist. And so still today, he presents to us a clear image of God glorified through the life and ministry, not of the weaker and of the fairer and of the gentler sex, but the stronger and the uglier and the more violent sex. And that is man. In Matthew 3, we read this. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now to whom was John the Baptist preaching? Well, there's a verse in Job which provides a fitting description for the condition of the Jewish nation and of the whole Roman Empire at the time of the beginning of John's preaching ministry. In Job 9.24, the beginning of the verse, it refers to the earth being given into the hand of the wicked. And this is an accurate description of the Roman Empire when John the Baptist began to preach. From the top military, political, and religious leaders down to local villages and towns, the Roman Empire was corrupt. And Judea had not escaped this corruption. In his work called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, Alfred Eidersheim describes that world that John was preaching to in this way. It says, quote, The reign of Caesar Augustus marked not only the climax, but also the crisis of Roman history. Whatever of good or of evil the ancient world contained had become fully ripe. The free citizens, as opposed to the slaves, were idle, dissipated, sunken. Their chief thoughts were of the theater and the arena. And they were mostly supported at the public cost, that is, by taxes. And I hope you realize that that's you. You are dissipated. And that's not a compliment. Dissipation is what happens when you take the spine and the chest and the calves and the biceps and the thinking capacity and the ability to have a conscience that is bad, when you take all that out, you're dissipated. You don't have the ability to repent because you don't know why you should. Your pride runs riot. You don't have a spine. You don't have a chest. You don't have muscles. You're dissipated. And that's what happens in a world where we're idle 
and our chief thoughts are of the theater and the arena. It's Facebook. Movies. And many of us are supported at the public cost. And I'm not talking about John Alberson. He is supported at the public cost. So are you, David. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where taxes allow us to eat and drink and to keep on without having to worry about providing everything that we use. And then it goes on and it says, without tracing the various phases of ancient thought, it may be generally said that in Rome, at least, the issue lay between Stoicism and Epicureanism. The one flattered its pride and the other gratified its sensuality. And so those were the two choices. You're very proud. You were very, very, very given over to your lusts. Those were the two choices. And both of these choices ultimately led to atheism and despair. The one by turning all higher aspirations selfward, the other by quenching them in the enjoyment of the moment. Now, think about this. Think about the fact that most of us, if we're living for pleasure, hide it from the church. You know, that's something that you don't really want to parade at this church or most churches that, that you live for pleasure, right? What we do, though, is we do turn in the direction of pride so that we craft our religion in such a way that it all has to do with me. So generally, we don't go in this direction of saying, well, I want my pleasure to be the principle of my life, but we do go in this direction of making religion another exercise of narcissism, which is the reigning ideology of postmodernism. We're narcissists. It's all about me. You know that song? (laughs) I wish I could sing it. I would sing it, but I guess I'm going to spare you. Can somebody sing it? Come on, you guys know the song. Come on, Mark, sing it. Esther, can you sing it? Want to talk about me? I want to talk about, I want to talk about number one, my, me, my. I'll take 10 of you any day. And so, for instance, you can go into churches around the country, and what you can find being preached is a very, very sophisticated narcissism, where you're not presented any obstacle to your pride. You're simply told that God is graceful to those who are narcissists. And and so I had a man, actually it was Mark Kuntz, Um, described the preaching at his church as unbelievably holding up the failures of us as individuals, but never giving us the doctrine of God. And he said in his church, there's no God. It's all us. Our selfishness, our you know, manipulative nature, our lack of faith, our, 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 I want to talk about me, I want to talk about my, I want to talk. And he said, but the character and perfections of God are simply not addressed. And that's what the preaching of grace is. The preaching of grace that goes on and on and on and is grace, 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 is narcissism under reformed uh, in, in reform drag. And so again, in the Roman Empire, dissipated, a life of entertainment, living off the public benefit. I mean, can, can you imagine the debt of our country and China holding it? All right? The absence of work ethic and choices between pleasure and pride. And the reformed world is the perfect, perfect storm for pride. Because what we do is, I keep telling you, we attach our brains 
to like R.C. Sproul with a SCSI drive, USB 2 or whatever the new Apple technology is. So it's like high-speed transfer, right? And then it downloads the word providence and the word sovereignty and grace and, and all these sophisticated intellectual theological constructs. And we think, what? That's what it means to be a Christian. Nowhere in the Bible does it say this. The Bible relentlessly talks about God lifting up the humble man. And if you can make a case that Reformed theology is the pursuit of humility, I'm ready to hear it. (laughs) You know, I think Reformed theology today is the perfect expression of pride. And God says what? God says that he hears the prayers of the humble man. And so this is what it says. It says, this is Rome. This is when John the Baptist was preaching. All higher aspirations were quenched. And then he goes on, Eidersham, and he says, it has been rightly said that the idea of conscience, as we understand it, was unknown to heathenism. And I'm thinking, well, Eidersham was writing, what, 7,500 years ago, 125 years ago. And so he says, the idea of conscience, as we understand it, was unknown to heathenism. He says, absolute right did not exist. Absolute right did not exist. Might was right. The social relations exhibited, if possible, even deeper corruption. The sanctity of marriage had ceased. Female dissipation and the general dissoluteness led at last to an almost entire cessation of marriage. And that's where Europe is, and that's where we are headed very quickly. Abortion and the exposure and murder of newly born children were common and tolerated. And then he says something very interesting. He says, unnatural vices, which even the greatest philosophers practiced, if not advocated, attained proportions which defied description. Well, what are unnatural vices? Well... He's speaking about homosexuality and other sexual perversions. And he doesn't even mention the word because he's from a century ago. Yesterday I was at Lowe's. Twice in the time I was there, I went by two lesbians who everything they were doing was an attempt to demand that people affirm their perversion. That's what it was about. The, the, the tattoos, the, the jewelry, the clothing, it screamed dyke. And it wasn't an apology, it wasn't a confession, and it wasn't shame. It was pride. And if, you know, one of them had a child, and you look at this child growing up in a home with those two people as her parents. And this is the world we live in. And the demand is that you, in your brain, go, love the sinner, hate the sin, love the sinner, hate the sin, love the sinner, hate the sin. And what that's supposed to do with you is keep you from promoting the shame that should be attached to this. It should be shameful because that is a help to people struggling with temptation. To have shame attended to a particular sin, is a help to them. But instead, the demand is that you affirm it, that you accept it as if it's nothing aberrant, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing shameful, nothing perverse. And so we live in the world of the Roman Empire at the time of John the Baptist. That's my point. We have the philosophical temptations and tendencies. We have the entertainment. We have the sports. We have ritualized conflict in sports, right? We we live at the public expense of our great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, okay? And we have every perversion in front of us demanding that it be honored,
And we have preachers who say that they have a principle against addressing these things publicly because that will keep people from being able to, to, to relate to them. And then in private, they can work through these things. And this is the PCA. This is the reformed world. This is who we are. Now, do you want me to yell at you? How about if I yell just for a second? So what was John the Baptist like? (laughs) You know, did he sit down with somebody and they said, you know, I'm so glad you never talked about abortion to me. Because if you'd talked about abortion, I would have left. But because you didn't mention abortion, then I came to realize that my abortion was wrong. You know, what was John the Baptist like? Well, first, I want to notice a few things about him. Number one, John the Baptist was called by God, just like Jeremiah. And so when we we begin to look at what he was like, we have to remind ourselves that he was called by God. And so it wasn't like this young man that was like, extraordinary and gifted, and so he decided that he... Now, God called him. God set him apart before he was born. That's what John the Baptist was like. He was called by God, okay? And this isn't unusual for prophets. Jeremiah tells us this was his call. It says in Jeremiah 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. A couple verses down, this is what God said to Jeremiah. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Well, what was Jeremiah's response? It says, then I said, Jeremiah said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak because I'm a youth. But the Lord said to me, don't say I'm a youth. Because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Don't be afraid of them. Then the Lord stretched out his hand, touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. You notice the three trip, the three pairs, okay? You've got pluck up, break down, you've got destroy and overthrow, and then you have build and plant, <laughs> Gives you an idea of what John the Baptist's ministry was. Same as Jeremiah. Skipping a couple verses later with Jeremiah's call, God says to him, I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Now gird up your loins. In other words, uh, roll up your pants and roll back your sleeves. And arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. And I love that, that God knows my and your fearfulness, timidity. And so God always says, if the carrot doesn't work, there's a stick at your rear end. God knows us. God knows that we have to have both the appeal and the threat. And he says to Jeremiah, now behold, he says, Uh, Don't be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. And what he's saying is, if you're embarrassed of me, I will embarrass you. I tell parents that if your child, when people come over for dinner, chooses that time to disobey, be twice as firm at that time. So that they don't think they can embarrass you into letting them rebel when they're a guest present. Well, that's what God's saying to Jeremiah. You're ashamed of me. I'll win. 
I will embarrass you. I will make you an item of dismay. And then he says, now behold, I've made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land of the kings of Judah to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And this is the beginning of the work of a prophet. Do you understand? This is the work of a preacher. Do you know that when I came to Bloomington, I showed up the first day at my office at my former church, and do you know what I found in that office? It's hanging up on the wall of my garage right now. It's a yellow hard hat. And it has on the front of it, written in a sharpie, Zeke, I think, 3-9. I didn't know what it was. I, it took me the longest time to figure out it was even a scripture reference because it said Zeke, you know. And then somehow one day it came to me that the verses, I have made your forehead hard as flint, for this is a rebellious people. Well, when I read it, I thought, who on earth put that in my office? Do you know who it was? Who do you think it was? It wasn't Rita. No, she couldn't have found a hard hat, and she would never have said Zeke instead of Ezekiel. It was Tim Wagner. He'd grown up in the church. Zeke. I think it was 3-9. Am I right that that's the address? Stephen? Yeah, yeah. And so here you have Jeremiah, and he's supposed to be a shepherd. And God says what? God says, they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you. And this is exactly John the Baptist. He was called, and God said, I'm going to be with you. Now, what was he called to do? Well, his message was a message of repentance. Both Matthew and Luke give us clear summaries of the substance of John the Baptist's message. In Matthew 3, 1, it reads, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke 3, 3, he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Such a message would not be tolerated in most evangelical churches of our land, nor in many churches claiming the reformers as their godly heritage. Today, there's a great attack upon anything that is not uplifting and graceful, anything that's not positively encouraging. Thus, there's a great attack upon the biblical doctrine of repentance. Lord Byron in the curse of Miniver says, quote, the weak alone repent. And that's what we believe. We believe it's a sign of weakness to repent. Man hates to repent because it is a mortifying. And I'm thinking nobody here even knows the word mortifying. You all know mortal combat. Mortify means to put to death your flesh, mortify, to kill something. And so it says man hates to repent because it's a mortifying, a pride-killing discipline. And so we seek to weasel around repentance any way we can, taking the first promising detour. Repentance is one of God's most gracious gifts, and those he loves he leads by this path until their entry into heaven. Martin Luther's first thesis is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We never get done with repentance. It's day after day after day. We're never done. It is always the calling of a shepherd, a pastor, of elders, of fathers and husbands and mothers. It's always our calling to call those that we love to repentance. You don't get past repentance as a Christian. The Reformed world is not a world where you can be separated from repentance. 
all of the world can be separated into those who do not repent and those whose life is a life of repentance. That's the division of the world. When the Bible says to those who persevere to the end, what it's talking about persevering in is repentance. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance. This is the beginning of the Reformation. And could any of us describe Reformed Presbyterian churches or Reformed Baptist churches today as places where the preachers always call the flock they love to repentance? John the Baptist began to preach and his message was repentant. If you think that it ended with John the Baptist, then Matthew tells us about Jesus, Matthew 4, 12 and 17. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, put in prison, he withdrew into Galilee. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he was called His message was one of repentance, and consequently, he suffered. In Matthew 14, beginning with verse 3, we read, For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. So here is John the Baptist, and he's in prison. And why is he in prison? He's in prison because he had told Herod that he shouldn't have his brother's wife. But that's not what the text says. (laughs) It doesn't say he had told. What does it say? It says he what? Had been saying to him, oh man, I mean, you know, take the most powerful leader in your area and and say that once to him and you feel like you have done a work of super arrogation. Nobody could ever expect me to do beyond that. But John had not said, but had been saying again and again and again and again and again and again. It was a dripping faucet of repentance. You know, it's like me with many of you. Many of you can raise your hand and say, yeah, you have been, you done been saying. (laughs) Your wife, she's been saying. Well, John the Baptist was saying this to the leaders. And so what? Herod had him arrested. He was in prison, right? In fact, in Luke 3, we read a little bit more about this. It says there that Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded because of, by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife. And then it says, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done. So apparently Herodias was just part of the call to repentance that John the Baptist gave this civil magistrate, this leader, this ruler. All right. Now, I'm going to be sarcastic for a second. Ironic satirical, something like that, okay? What a failure this young man was. Only a year and a half into his preaching ministry, and he's already in prison. What a blot on the name and reputation of his seminary and his professors and also his home church. Probably there's not going to be a remember John the Baptist week at the 50th reunion of his graduating class. No plaque commemorating the pulpit of his first sermon. No preaching chair yet named in his honor. Can you imagine a seminary having the, you know, this man is, is uh, the, the John the Baptist preacher, homiletics professor, or John the Baptist professor of homiletics. And yet what company this, now I'm no longer facetious, all right? But what company this man kept 
Jeremiah thrown into the pit. Daniel thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. Stephen stoned. I mean, what group do you want to be in? I mean, what a great, great, great group to be in. And now it's time for another man of God to preach and to suffer for that preaching. If you follow John the Baptist's ministry, you would have had an early warning of the gathering storm. In Luke 3, beginning with verse 7, we read, So he, John the Baptist, began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. Now think about this. He's out in the wilderness Okay, so he's not in Bloomington, he's not in Martinsville, and he's not in Bedford. He's out in Hoosier National Forest, says Tim Wagner. He's someplace where there aren't any signs up that say you can't smoke. Okay, in the boonies, boonies, and people are pouring, they're in droves going out into Hoosier National Forest to hear him. Very seeker-sensitive, isn't he? That was sarcastic. I mean, how many obstacles does this dude put up in front of the people to keep them from hearing the gospel preached? They They have to leave their homes and go into the wilderness to hear him. That's how seeker-sensitive he was. And then this is what he says. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's like the dude doesn't get it. He should go to a Willow Creek conference. He should read Brian Chappell's book on graceful preaching. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have a covenant grad as our pastor. I listen to bluegrass music. I'm a member of Clearnote Church Bloomington. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree that does not know what grace is and how justification works is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, take your pick. You can have one or the other. You can't have both. And you say, yeah, but justification is a biblical doctrine. I say, yes, but do you know how relentless Scripture, all of Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from (laughs) Alpha to Omega, how relentless Scripture is in saying that the people of God are holy, sanctified, saints. That's how we know that we belong to God. And the crowds were questioning and saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers, I love this. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Last night I was reading an article about all the people from poor countries around the world who do all of the non-strictly military things for our troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're the ones that work at the Taco Bells and TGIF and cut their hair and give them manicures and all this other stuff. And do you know something? It is, it is absolutely appalling what America is able to do. 
the oppression. This is systemic with our military. It's very interesting, though. Any evil that we commit as a nation through our military is dwarfed by the evil of the Roman Empire. And do you know something? He did not tell them to leave their positions as soldiers. What he said to them was, you be an honorable soldier. I just love that. And I'm continuing to read a summary of what he said, and it ends with this. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clean his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so that's the description, John the Baptist, and and he's no wallflower. That's the description he has of Jesus, that Jesus is going to be a man whose ministry is also going to be calling people to repentance and His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is Jesus. That's how John the Baptist sums Jesus up. Do you know that back in the old days, Christians, having a biblical understanding of what it meant to be a Christian, would sing songs about harvest Chaff, fire, burning. They would sing songs that had joy at God's coming judgment. And that was part of their worship. And do I need to tell you that that is never a part of our worship? Never. We would not dream of writing and singing songs about God's judgment. But you go back into colonial times and you'll hear songs like, uh, the trumpet shall sound and the dead be raised and all those who don't know Christ will go down to hell where they will be damned forever. And they sing this. They sing it. This message John the Baptist says Jesus is going to have, they sing about it. Have you ever watched men who, who have faith sing a mighty fortress? Women, let me, let me let you in on something. Real men love a mighty fortress as our God. And real men, now I'm not trying to say that this is not a, well, I'm just going to let you know it's true. Real men love that hymn. And you know, real men in that hymn wait for a certain point. And then if you watch them, if I took a movie of you singing this, and I discriminated between the men and the women, and then the men who were living by faith and the men who weren't, the men who are living by faith are just waiting for this. And though this world through, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The king of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fall. And then you'll see our faces transported. That word above all. (laughs) Where Where are those hymns being written today? Where are they being written today? Where are they being sung today? That hymn is a specimen. It's a museum piece from a man who wasn't entirely spiritual. Martin Luther once had Wayne Grudem tell me that the reformers in the way that they spoke about the sins around them 
were sinful. I don't think he knew any union then. Listen, people. John the Baptist was not a person. He was a man. And his God was a God of judgment and mercy. And so John the Baptist preached repentance. He did not pander to the narcissism of postmoderns. He lived in a decadent age when everybody was dissipated and lived for movies and Facebook. And he was fire in their face. And when he preached and they came, what did he do? Who told you to flee the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The axe is at the root. And those people knew what? They knew that John the Baptist loved them. And if the women had trouble understanding that as love, their husbands explained it to them. Jesus says, John the Baptist sends disciples to Jesus. He's in prison. He says, Jesus, are you the one? He's weak. It's the end of his life. Jesus is very, very, very tender with him because he knows our weakness. He knows our frame. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear him, for he knows our frame that we are made of dust. Right? And so Jesus is tender with John the Baptist. And then he says this, as these John, these men, John's disciples were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. They're in tall steeple churches. What did you go out to see? What is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that John is not to be condemned on the basis of what appears may have been a momentary lapse, a weak moment at the end of his life, but honored for a lifetime of faith, courage, boldness, strength, and fearless preaching of eternal truths. And the fact that he's in a prison is no shame to John the Baptist. He is to be honored as one of God's faithful prophets, a man wholly sold out to glorifying God and having God glorified in him. Jesus points to those listening and reminds them that they're among the many who walked, journeyed, trekked out into the wilderness to hear John preach. And reminding them of those days, Jesus puts this question to him to them. Was John so weak-willed that he went in whatever direction the wind was blowing? Was that the kind of man you traveled out to hear? Was John motivated by greed? Did you see him indulging himself in the soft comforts of the aristocrats, the rich professionals? Did you see him wearing satin, silk, or velvet and live in a mansion? Was that the kind of man you traveled to hear? Then he assumes a negative response to the question, and he goes on and he says this, but what did you go out to say? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before it. Truly, now this is Jesus speaking about John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then he ends with this statement. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. So I'm thinking about this and I thought about the prodigal son. How when he was out slopping pigs, which was the most humiliating thing that you could imagine for a Jew. 
all of a sudden, he came to his senses, and he said to himself, I will arise and say to my father, Father, I didn't realize how good I had it. And I'm sorry, I took you for granted. And so, is it okay with you if I come home and... It's okay if I sleep on the couch. That's okay. But I'm hungry. (laughs) And violent men take it by force. It's not what the prodigal said. What the prodigal said was this. I will arise And say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no longer worthy to be called thy son. Make me a slave. And when he said that to his father, his father said what? Throw a party. My son is home. If he had said to his father, Father, I didn't realize how good I had it. Do you think that father would have thrown a party? Absolutely not. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom that is taken by violence. And the violence begins with us killing our pride. We have to kill our pride because God resists the proud. If we try to mince our confessions of sin, if we try to excuse ourselves, honey, I'm sorry about what I did, but God... I'm sorry, but, Father, I didn't realize how good I had it. Would you please? But that's not what he said. And when Jesus speaks about money and God, he says that you cannot love both money and God. He says you will either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. And so you can't enter heaven without hating money. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by storm. Violent men. They have to hate money. They have to say, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. They have to kill their pride. They have to hate their father and mother and they have to cut out their eye and they have to cut off their arm. This is how you enter heaven. This is how Jesus purchased redemption for us. How can we claim to be Christians and we can't even turn off the television? We can't go a half an hour without checking Facebook. And you're going to tell me that you're a violent man pursuing the kingdom of God? You can't even spank your children. You don't even see that they need to be spanked. And you're a violent man. Now, let me end with a positive illustration. All right? (laughs) Okay, here's my positive illustration. John, come here. Yep, come here. Jeez, stand down there. There we go. Otherwise, I wouldn't be taller than you. Now, listen, people. He could have worn his dress uniform today. He's just back from Afghanistan. And he's a Marine. Do you understand me? Do you understand me? Everybody understands me. Do you understand me? And so we look at him and we say, here is a violent man who will give himself to protect the weak and the oppressed. And you say, well, that's not what the American empire is about. I say, forget that. 
That's what he's about. You all know him. He grew up among you. That's who he is. Do any of you women have any question that he would die for you? Any, anybody here have any question that he would die for you? No, no. Now, that's glory. But you know something? I, and I've been thinking about this for several weeks. This is not something that just occurred to me. But what I've been thinking is this. If John were to come in his dress uniform and stand before us as a Marine just back from active duty and about to go back soon, okay, deployment. If he were to stand here as a Marine with that suit on, right, that uniform, and I were to say to you, what is honorable about this man? Do you know what I would say to you? I would say to you that the real honor of John is not that he's a Marine, not that he's been in Afghanistan, not that he would die to protect you physically. His honor was when he was being horrible to his mother. Horrible to you? Yes. He came to the elders and asked them to discipline him. Violent men take it by force. He took his sin and he made it clear to the elders and said, would you please help me stop? Huh? Huh? I'm sorry, but heck, you had that coming. Okay, everybody ready? Hip, hip! Hip, hip! Hip, hip! And would you be surprised to know that John has disciplined me? No, he has. Now we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table. And if you're weak... And if your conscience is tender, as you come to the table, say, I will arise and will go unto my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no longer worthy to be called but thy son. And come to the party, come to the table. Just kill your pride. Just kill it.